Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sachs' Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher. I'm an associate professor at Clemson University, and I'm also your host for this program. Today, I am both pleased and excited to have Dr. Erica Weiborg at William & Mary as our guest. Erica, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's so good to um, just be on to chat about my life and work. So Awesome. Well, you're an expert on the topic, so... That's You're true. For that. I better be, right? <laughs> um, so before we get into the work and career part, can you tell listeners just a little bit about who you are outside of work? Hobbies, things you're reading, watching, listening to, whatever you might like to share. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that um a lot of people don't know, because I guess I should address my Zoom background on certain meetings, is that I have a lot of plants in my home. Um, so I actually got um, into plants over the pandemic, as most people do or did. There was a group of folks that were called, we called ourselves the pandemic pod, did dinners together and meals together. And um, one of the hobbies that we all took on was uh, indoor houseplants. So I have over... 70 houseplants in my home. And I will have to say I've neglected them. This <laughs> this semester has been rough, but they do bring me joy. So that's something that I do that, you know, I spend a lot of time on. So if you ever need any plant tips, like, you know, fertilizer or anything like that, I'm your gal. I also love thrifting. Thrifting oh. is one of my favorite hobbies. Anything that I, I call my style like grandma chic, um, which is a style <laughs> you can <laughs> lean into. Uh, I love finding finding things in the thrift store, things that have a story that are older. And so I am totally a knickknack collector. So I also love to go to estate sales and search for items that ha- um, bring me joy. So that's kind of some of my things that I do, um, but I also have a dog, two dogs, actually, a bulldog and a labradoodle. So we do a lot of walks um, outside and um, they are both 12. So they're getting up in age. So we've been trying to spend a lot more time um, walking them and keeping them active. Well, at least my labradoodle, the bulldog doesn't make it very far. (laughs) (laughs) The bulldog gets tired very quickly. Um, So Brody and Radley are pups. And so that's kind of what I, I spend a lot of my time on. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's make the shift into work. And can you talk a little bit about yourself and your journey into, through, and the question is, and beyond higher education, but we're still in it. So through and sustainingly involved in higher ed. So I, um, education is part of my family. So I have two aunts and my mom are both, were both K-12 educators. So education was definitely instilled within me early on, but working with kids wasn't necessarily, I think, my jam. I still was interested in education, but I didn't necessarily know what aspect of education was I interested in. And so when I went to undergrad, I went to Florida State University, majored in business marketing, uh, did a certificate um, called leadership, a certificate in leadership studies at Florida State. It was a brand new certificate program that the university had just created. So it was one of the first few graduating, I guess, cohorts in that program. I was also the over-involved leader. I hadn't joined a sortie till my sophomore year, but I jumped in um, to like 
orientation and um, dance marathon there. And so I was the typical um, over-involved leader. But it was really the leadership study certificate that helped me decide to go seek a master's degree in student affairs administration. So I got my um, student affairs administration degree at Texas A&M. Um, and there I was the graduate assistant in orientation. Um, and a lot of the outside as you know, internships, we had to do two practicum experiences. I did it in leadership um, and service learning, and then assessment, like assessing student learning, assessing, assessing student leadership learning. So there's a project there called the Student Leader Learning Outcomes Project, SLOW, and I had gotten involved in some of that, that work. And so when I was job searching for my first job out of my master's degree, I was searching an orientation and leadership and assessment um, in student affairs divisions. It was during kind of a weird time where a lot of people weren't hiring. So I actually was about to leave and go back to retail. And then I finally got an offer at Florida State. Never thought I would return back to my alma mater so quickly, but I did. Um, and I worked at the Center for Leadership and Social Change for five years. And I worked with social justice and leadership programming. And um, I also convened a group called the Spiritual Life Project. So in that, that job actually really shaped a lot of my research um, that I can talk about later. But one of the reasons was that at the time that I um, was hired, um, at the Center for Leadership and Social Change, we were actually merging as this, uh, the Center for Leadership and Service merged with the Center for Multicultural Affairs. And so there was a restructuring of the division that occurred. And that's at the point that I got hired. So I got to work with, like, uh, coordinated the social justice living learning community, leadership. Um, I also worked with a program called Women's Leadership Institute, created that, helped create that program with a group um, of colleagues, service leadership seminar, and others that I worked with, but primarily leadership and social justice programming was my area. And so I worked, as I said, five years in that job. And then I decided that I wanted to get a PhD. I had some more questions than I had lots of questions that I was exploring. And someone actually was like, that sounds like you should get a PhD. <laughs> it was actually, I remember it was Laura Osteen. She said, it sounds like that this is something that could be like a PhD. You could ask this question and really engage in research on the topic. And so I started to get my PhD part-time and still work full-time. And then I transitioned um, to um, full-time and I was a graduate assistant, assistant in the Leadership Learning Research Center. I actually taught in the undergraduate leadership studies certificate. So it was a full circle moment of teaching in that program. And I was also a research assistant and worked on a couple of projects on like culturally relevant leadership learning. So that really started my journey in faculty life. So when I graduated with my PhD, I applied for faculty jobs, which brought me here um, to William & Mary. Um, I was actually a visiting assistant professor for two years and then just recently transitioned into a tenure track line. In my visiting role, I primarily focused on higher ed. Um, all, all courses were situated within the higher ed program, um, which has both master's, PhD, and EDD degrees. 
And so I taught across all three of those. And now um, I've transitioned to teaching our qualitative research methods. And I still teach within our higher ed program, but I've kind of adjusted my load to be where I teach more of the, the research methodologies classes. So that's kind of where I'm at in my journey. Every single aspect, I think, you know, focusing on qualitative research and now teaching in qualitative research. And I also teach the leadership and change course here in the higher ed program. It all intersects with my all of my, my past over time, even thinking about when I was at Texas A&M and um, thinking of the mentors I had there who taught me qualitative research as a master's student and really had me join qualitative projects um, at Texas A&M. And I even still reference some of those projects in my classes. And so it's kind of cool to see how your journey ebbs and flows and has connections to your work. So. Yeah, that's great. And and you set it up perfectly for my next question, which is about some of those mentors. So who have been, you know, we always talk about student affairs is such a small field. And I feel like this question helps us get at, oh, yeah, I know that person as well. Or I've heard good things and would love to know more about this person's work. So who have been some of those people for you along the way? Yeah, It is, well, I first would have to start off with saying the person that like went out, I I tell him this all the time, the person that went out on a limb to hire me at the center, because, you know, I'm a white woman and I was applying to coordinate social justice programming. And I still had, I think, a lot of like learning and development and growth to do. Um, Not that that's ever perfect and ended. It's an ongoing process, but Um, I was definitely like rough around the edges. I had still a lot of things to figure out. And um, Antron Mahoney, Dr. Mahoney hired me. He really mentored me in my first two years as as a program coordinator. And what I really appreciated, he's a faculty member now at um, the College of Charleston and um, got his PhD in Pan-African Studies. And his journey uh, decided not to get a you know, PhD in higher education um, and transition to um, a different discipline, but still publishes and writes on leadership. And one of the things that I learned from Antron is the complexity and like to slow down also. Um, And uh, he challenged some of my perfectionism tendencies that are definitely rooted in whiteness. um, Now that I've learned more about whiteness as a construct. And also we were a team, like we, he created like a, I guess a real space, a professional space for us for, and I say us because we we were a cluster of of colleagues that came together around a common purpose. And so he really set the stage for me of, of good supervision and of what a, re, a good student affairs administrative practice can be. Also balance life with work. Also, he's just brilliant in turn. And I was just so honored to be in his space and have, you know, weekly one-on-ones to learn from him. And he always challenged me with care. So I guess that's something I really valued. And we're now working on a, a, we're partnering on um, some work now. And we're both the co-chairs of the um, Leadership Educators Symposium. Used to be um, the National Leadership Symposium. Um, It's now the Leadership Educators Symposium. And so we're now co-chairs together with that. So we've been able to re-engage and just be in this uh, service space together um, and work together again. So it's been really a good, a good time. And then I wouldn't be remiss to call out, I have a group of 
of friends called the Crick Collective. And um, we all had different timings in our PhD journey at Florida State. So Dr. Esty Hernandez, Jesse Ford, and Brittany Brewster. We all look at the world, um, I guess, in a critical perspective. That's why we call colloquially the Crick Collective is kind of a colloquial term. But like, we're just support each other. We got each other through the PhD journey and beyond. So still friends celebrating life, supporting each other, um, and whatever that might look like. So just the community of support that you need to get through a PhD is so important. Even like I can think back to like moments of dreaming that we did um, that like some of the dreaming may never happen, but we just needed to be in a dream space to get out of this like um, deep space that we were in. We just needed to dream about other possibilities. And so having friends to balance that and to support you is, I think, really important. So I'm so glad that you're highlighting that. I think there's so much work along the doctoral journey that we do in isolation. I mean, it's just the nature of the work, but ideally none of us should be doing it truly alone. Like those those communities make all the difference because we all hit the wall at some point and we need somebody to turn to to kind of process that. So great. Well, let's shift now to your current work and thanks for setting the stage because it'll be interesting to hear how your practitioner and your academic experiences inform who you are and how you show up with your students today. And let's start with that student-teacher kind of uh, connection. What's your philosophy as a teacher in your faculty role? Yeah, um, so I do approach teaching and learning. So one of my strings of research is pedagogy, thinking about learning, the construction of a learning space, and particularly around topics fraught with like power. Um, The teaching and learning space is definitely one because of our, our, um, I guess, roles and the decision-making power that a faculty member has on grades and other aspects of um, Uh, the environment. Um, But I do try as best as I can to approach um, the space as a community of co-learners. I think one secret that we don't talk about as faculty, and I don't know if you feel this way, Michelle, but we have to like sometimes learn a whole topic (laughs) about something two weeks before the semester. Hopefully you have more time to prep than that, but (laughs) there are times where you're like, needing to teach something. And I guess I probably realized this. And when I was a visiting um, assistant professor, and I taught a large teaching load. um, And so I can't be an expert in all eight of these classes. There's no way that I can be an expert in all eight of these classes. And um, so I had to let go of some of that expectation that you are shift my identity as a as an instructor to be more about creating space for learning and co-constructing learning, Um, because a lot, uh, you know, I, I, while I'm not so out of the student affairs administration time of my life there, the students are different. And so we need to really um, prioritize the lived experiences of students that are are talking with students or creating programs for students right now or making administrative choices around structures of, or policies that are supporting students right 
Um, and so for me, I see it um, as valuing and amplifying their learning and sharing of lived experiences in their work. And I draw from an array of pedagogies like to do that. So I am an activities-based, um, you know, instructor. I love to draw on um, different modality, like different tactile experiences. So um uh, like, for example, um, doing critical reflection or going out and doing walks, um, reflexivity walks, and um, engaging in a critical topic while walking with a with a colleague, applying the readings that way. And so, um, you know, also being aware of like where students are emotionally in a given semester and adjusting for that. And so if there is something that's going on um, in the world, we have to like address it because we are a microcosm of the world. So I try to engage in empathy around some of those pieces. And so um, I also do problem posing, edu- you know, problem posing education. So case studies or um, what are problems that you're having in your graduate assistantship or full-time job, bringing that into the class to engage in critical thinking. So I think that that's how it's connected to my student affairs background and my administrative experience because um, I see the value of actual informal theory and how we build informal theory in the professional spaces and then bringing it into classroom, right? So if we're using like the different, you know, I, I used to teach student development theory and so we taught heavily about the difference between formal and informal theory, but a lot of our theories are informally based, but um, are important, relevant things to draw on if we're also understanding how this has implications for varied groups of students and talk about power and contending with some of those things. So, so that's how I, I approach my teaching is, I guess, co-learners, a community of co-learners is the thing that I kind of hold on to kind of expectations for how we engage in that. Yeah. And so much of what you're saying I can relate to because that idea of, I've taught a lot of different courses across our curriculum. I'm not an expert in hardly any of them. Once you give up that burden and realize it's about facilitating more than holding all the knowledge, it makes for a whole different experience. And I think it really empowers the students as well. So I'm sure you see them engaging in, oh, you really do want to hear what I have to say. You know, that can be a light bulb moment, I think. It can be such a contrast comparing it to their undergraduate student experiences. So wonderful. What about research? What are some areas of interest if you have current projects you're excited about? What's your research look like? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my research is really grounded on time, uh, coordinating leadership and social justice programs. And um, in particular, um, there was a moment that I can actually draw or think about that roots some of the of my research. And um, so a student, student of color had approached me and we were working on thinking about or envisioning a different program, but they had just completed um, that we had coordinated. And the student had asked, you know, why, why did the, the program feel so white, even though um, demographically, the program was racially and ethnically diverse, even not just the large, like the, the overall program group, but also our small groups were racially and ethnically diverse. So um, probably in a given small group, there might have been um, out of 10 students, like three white students. Um, 
And so this student, this, this, this student asked, like, why did it feel white, even though it was um, uh, diverse um, racially and ethnically? We started to just kind of uh, in collaboration, like explore what that question meant, that something could still feel white, even though it wasn't rate, you know, if we look at, if we look at the demographics, it wasn't predominantly white. And we started to see um, our curriculum, how our curriculum was rooted in knowledge that reascribed whiteness, that it also, sometimes leadership programs feel really happy. I don't know if you've ever been to a coordinated leadership program where it overemphasizes the positivity and the happiness of leadership. So like, we will come together we will create change, but they don't necessarily address savior complexes and hero narratives that are rooted in, um, you know, someone outside of the community coming in to save an entire community. And that's that can actually be perpetuated in leadership trainings and, and leadership programs. That started my um, area of research. And so I started to explore um race and racism, and also whiteness in post-secondary leadership learning environments. So that would include both co-curricular, so the, the lead, leadership programs um, that student affairs administrators coordinate, and then curricular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in-course classes that are on leadership, or on the topic of leadership that are often taught by student affairs administrators, because we do have a lot of, you know, across the U.S., there are different disciplines that teach leadership, and one of those is um, standalone interdisciplinary programs that can be drawn from student affairs backgrounds. And so that's what I look into. So I explore pedagogy and how how teaching and learning of leadership uh, can ascribe or reascribe whiteness. And I specifically look at I'm a discourse critical discourse uh, scholar. So I use I use use that methodology because one of the ways you know leadership is very much rooted in language, and so discourse both shape and is shaped by um, society. So if we talk about leadership one way, we are actually shaping what our beliefs are about leadership. But if we can adjust our discourse, then um, we might, our actions and our behaviors might adjust about, you know, adjust when we actually uh, engage in the leadership process. I specifically have a few lines of inquiry that I look at, mainly in the pedagogy space. So um, I, um, my dissertation research was, went to, I looked at a um, leadership minor. I actually observed for an entire week and documented discourse in both small group and large group conversations in the courses to see how whiteness was you know, perpetuated in the discourse. I'm working on a couple of publications around that, but then more broadly, I look at how do we develop identity capacity and efficacy in college student, un, you know, undergraduate college student development, leadership learning development. How we teach and learn leadership is connected to that. So how do we teach identity and how um, both I, in terms of who you are as a leader, but then also your social location and your social identities and capacity. So how you actually... Um, how you actually uh, learn leadership, what are the beliefs, values that you hold, what are the skills that you have, and then efficacy um, would be your belief in your ability to do something, right, to actually engage in the leadership process. Um, I also look at that and how college students engage um, in those three, those three processes. I think I covered, yeah, those are mainly what I'm, what I'm focused on right now. Um, 
I have one project, but I think we're going to talk about that later. And so I'll wait to talk about that one till, okay. till a little bit. Well, talk a little bit about, so I love how you said, I believe it was Dr. Mahoney talked about balance and life beyond the work and things like that. So how do you make your choices? Like, how do you decide which projects you're going to pursue? Um, if you have any tips for listeners on how to elegantly decline opportunities, what are your your thoughts on the yeses and the nos of the work? Um, I would say I'm still learning. I'm not great at it. So I don't know if I'm the best person to give advice <laughs> on it. But I think what I try to do, and um, sometimes I don't, like slow down enough to ask this question, but I try to, is I try to think about um, like, what can my contribution be? And is this, if I contribute this, will it decrease my contributions and the other commitments that I have, like negatively decrease the contributions that I'm having and the other spaces? And also ask myself like, is this, am I saying yes to this? Cause I feel that I'm the only one that can do this. And if so, why do I feel that way? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And I try not to say yes right away. I try to like, think about it for a day or two. And, you know, is this something that um, I should add to my plate or feel that is aligned um, that I can contribute. But um Sometimes I get caught up in the moment and I'm just like, yes, like I'll do it. Someone needs to do it. It needs to get done. So it can be me. You know, I sometimes make that error and I don't slow down. Um, And so um, one of the practices I'm trying to employ is not saying yes right away. So it's not necessarily that it will be a no. It's just like, give me some time to like, think about it. Um, And hopefully the person will have the flexibility um, to give me time to, to reflect on it. Cause there's some, some situations where I'm just like, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm not saying yes to anything else. And then something comes along and I'm like, this actually would be really important and relevant to my work. Um, and then here I am moving my boundary. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I try just to approach it in slowness as much as I can. Yeah. I love that. I, uh, I tell, doc students when we go into a proposal or a defense not to say yes to what faculty suggest but let me give that some more thought and I'm so good at saying it to other people but I'm the same way sometimes I get caught up in the moment and I'm like yeah sure I'll do that and then down the road it's like oh you know maybe this wasn't the best yes to give so what sorts of things are you involved in outside of teaching and research? What does your service look like? What um, does your involvement with professional organizations look like? What are some of those things for you? My primary involvement is the um, Leadership Educator Symposium, which is formally called the National Leadership Symposium. And so for folks who don't know um, uh, about this like professional development experience, it is uh, one that I actually attended as a um, student affairs administrator. Um, and, um, it's a, a three-day, um, program facilitated by the National Clearinghouse of Leadership Programs for leadership programs. And, um, we engage in a deep dive in a topic and actually have, um, 
scholars that join, scholars and residents that join and facilitate um, the curriculum. I remember like one of the first symposium experiences I went to, Alyssa Abis was there facilitating and I learned about MMDI and identity theory applied to leadership before I even learned it in my, like actually applied it in my professional practice. Um, so there were, there's all, there's just really amazing scholars that come and get to engage and learn from them and with them. So it is very much a interactive symposium. You have a set of a, a small set of readings or podcasts or prep work that you do before you get there. And so we're, we've all kind of read about this topic related to leadership learning and then engage in, in discussion, dialogue, considering the ways that it applies to our professional practice. And then we can go home and apply some of the things that we're doing. So I've been the co-chair for the last, I'm coming on my second year. So this is my last year as the co-chair for that. And so we recently adjusted our time. It used to be that the symposium happened over the summer and we've adjusted it to December. So alternate years from the Leadership Educators Institute. So LEI um, is how it uh, happens every December. So we are um, on that off year, we'll have the symposium. The last two years, we've really been po- focused on um, liberatory uh, leadership learning and how we create um, liberatory spaces around leadership. And if that's possible, how do we do it? How do we seek freedom in what we're um, what we're you know working on with students? And so um, we've got three amazing scholars that are joining. And so that's mainly for this um, upcoming December. That's mainly my service area and has been over the last um, two years, but I'll be rolling off of that. And so I'm now looking at what are the other, what are the other areas um, that I want to get plugged into and involved in. I've maintained active involvement with NASPA. Um, I was emerging, um, emerging faculty, uh, I was part of the Emerging Leaders Faculty Academy. Um, so EFLA, there we go. Um, with NASPA. And that was a really amazing experience. So anyone who's like graduating or just newly in a faculty role, I highly recommend it. I met a great group of cohort, uh, you know, amazing cohort. um, And we talked about a lot of the faculty issues that we were having as new faculty. And it was a real safe space to plan and to think about. We all were former student affairs administrators and transition to faculty life. It was a community that I unexpectedly really needed. I, I applied for it because someone had shared it with me and I trusted their judgment. And I was like, they, they definitely know that this is a great program. And then um, it ended up being really transformative for me. So that's mainly my my main area of involvement right now. But um, I also have campus involvement that I definitely enjoy. I'm on our um, a diversity. I'm the chair of our diversity um, committee here in the School of Education. Um, and I'm working with WM Sure this year as a fellow, which is a program that works with predominantly students of color to do research, to do undergraduate research. That's been a real generative space for me as well. What What are some projects you want to highlight? And they might be scholarship, might be teaching, might be, well, you talked about the big event you have coming up in December for service, yes. but what, what would you like to highlight for listeners right now? Yeah, one of the projects that I mentioned when I was talking about my research and the reason I don't situate it right within my research is, which is a challenge for me, I think that we have to, our research has to fit this like neatly packaged designs 
research focus. And sometimes that's, sometimes we have interests or our lives require us to engage in other, um, I guess, lines of inquiry. And I think being okay with that is really important um, because these boundaries of the academy don't allow for us to, I guess, explore outside of that packaged box. And so maybe I should push back against that and talk about it with my research interests because I I don't necessarily, I feel that we can push against that. But um, a project I'm working on is looking at exploring the narratives of faculty living with long COVID. Uh, It's been more in the media um, as of late. There are a group, there's, you know, folks in the, there are folks living with long COVID. So they still have symptoms of, um, a lot of the main symptoms are brain fog, um, uh, overall fatigue, difficulty functioning. They get fatigued very easily. um, And everyone has to present symptoms um, differently. But um, I actually live with um, long COVID. So I'm a long hauler. What this, what the study is, is really to, to document some of the experiences I have but also the experiences of other faculty that are living with long COVID Um, because we very much live in an ableist, you know, our academia and um, the work that we do, ableism is alive and well (laughs) in, in higher ed. And, and so if you disclose to someone that, you know, you have long COVID, what in essence you're disclosing is that, you have difficulty with short-term, if if these are the symptoms you're presenting. For me, it's that. I have short-term memory issues, brain fog, and that can be a real vulnerable admission, right? That these are things that you are working with. I'm wanting to unmask it and just to, of course, within the safety of an IRB. I mean, right now I'm telling you, disclosing on this podcast that I have it, which is totally fine because I'm open about living with long COVID. I've worked on strategies for still, um, you know, showing up the way that I, I need to. And it can be a real isolating space to feel like you're the only one living with this um, in the faculty world. So I am excited to document narratives. And so that invite, the invite to recruit faculty will be coming out soon. And there are other colleagues that are researching long COVID, um, students living with long COVID too, that I've partnered with and we'll be working on that. Those, I think, experiences will be really important to highlight because our students also are living with this and there are students that have long COVID. It can be feel really isolating because there's not um, a lot of research on it. Doctors don't necessarily know what to do. Um, it's still a very new, a new thing. So that's one of the exciting projects that I'm working on right now. So more to come. More to come. Yes, always. Well, and I appreciate you sharing that a lot because we're so focused on getting past COVID and when is it over and it will continue to be part of us Yes, forever, really. And so the idea of let's not run away from it, but let's really understand what are the implications in lots of different areas is yeah. going to be really valuable. And I have to imagine just the opportunity to talk with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there are so many things we don't talk about a lot as, as faculty or, you know, collaborators or whatever it might be. So, so thank you for doing that work and all yeah. the best on that. Thanks. 
sort of along those lines of what do you talk about? What do you not do? How do you how do you be a faculty member? What are some things in your experience that have surprised you positively or negatively um, as you move from a practitioner role into your faculty position? That's a good question. I think that, I guess that this is, so I am definitely, I would say, I don't know if junior faculty is the right word, but I'm definitely a newer faculty member. And I'm on the, you know, of course, my first year on a tenure track line. I think that when you were an administrator, you pick up on administrative processes that you thought were common sense. Mm. If that makes sense. <laughs> like um, I was talking with a colleague who used to also be an administrator and like sending an Outlook invitation with a calendar invite, just as one example of a pro- administrative process that you would think is a common, you know, something that is common. And that's not the case with faculty. Like when you're in, like, there are certain things that you learn as an administrator that um, aren't known by other faculty. And so for me, uh, I guess some of the efficiency things and not even efficiency, but just getting work, collaborative work done, right? The governance process um, and actually making decisions and doing it in a way that values, you know, voice and situates um, the problem and make just decision-making processes, right? All of those aspects that we learn as administrators are things that aren't uh, normal practice in faculty life. And so there's a tension there that I think surprised me. And I, people warned me about it, right? And that, but, um, but there's a tension there. And so I've struggled, I think probably with saying that yes, and what you say yes and no to, because they are easy to me, right. To do these, these things because they're what we did as, as an administrator, but they still take time away from the faculty work. And so that tension of balancing, uh, the tension of balancing um, processes and incorporating it into your work that you used to do as an administrator, and that's not the case for, for, for others, right? So I don't know if that makes any sense or if you feel that as well, but that's been something I've been like reflecting on. And it really just started from a jo- joke around um, sending Outlook. <laughs> calendar invites but that I mean because those are things that you learn right like when you set up a meeting whoever the meeting whoever's in charge of the meeting sends uh you know but that necessarily isn't a normal process that all faculty engage in um or all cultures engage in um across various institutions so um it's something that you learn yeah. <laughs> so that's something that surprised me <laughs> well and even running meetings there's yeah, running so, meetings. like Having a goal for the meeting, this is what yeah. we hope to achieve. I have found that doesn't always happen in faculty meetings. And, and I think the goal is there, but it's not always stated or shared. And so then people are working toward different points of closure on a particular topic. But yeah. um, yes, I can I can very much relate to what you're talking about. So I wonder if it also lends itself to when you said earlier, I'm the person who can do this. If part of it is informed by, I have literally been trained how to do these kinds of things. And some of my colleagues have not. So I'm going to have to do some more thinking on that because I, I'm thinking about when I see my colleagues volunteer for certain things, 
and what their backgrounds are and how that might inform volunteering out of uh, enthusiasm Mm -hmm. versus Mm -hmm. necessity or efficiency or practicality. So um, great, great observation. Kind of along those same lines. So if someone was coming to you and said, okay, give me, give me your best advice about starting to think about becoming a faculty member, whether it's a student, a student affairs practitioner, what advice would you give? Maybe lessons learned, stories would you share? How how would you respond to them? I found a lot of value in um, in teaching before deciding that I wanted to do faculty life. And so um, as much as you can find an adjunct opportunity or a TA experience, I would highly recommend that. Um, And because uh, teaching well requires a lot of prep work. And I think what we see as um, students is only a small amount of what teaching is. Um, And so as much as you can get exposure to the other side, that's not the visible side, right, to the student, I think is really useful. And so like some of the um, teaching experiences that I have for graduate students, I have them like write a teaching philosophy statement and have them do a quiz on what what their beliefs are about knowledge construction. And we engage in conversations about how those differ and how that will show up in our teaching and learning environment um, that we're um, facilitating. And so for me, I think that's a big piece. I know that that's hard if you're working, you know, full time to also add adjunct, uh, doing adjuncts in a class, but maybe it's something you could co-teach with someone and aligned with something directly connected to your practice. Like there's a student, usually a student affairs admin class and a lot of programs. That's a really great class or a a groups class, um, you know, whatever that might be, Um, even an internship class um, supporting that um, for students. But some sort of pedagogical experience that you can have to see the other side of teaching. And then on the flip side of that with research, I think that um, there are colleagues, you know, across, you know, colleagues that love to publish with practitioners and see that as inherent, as see that as a value and a strength in what we study, right, with um, student affairs and higher education. And so if you have colleagues at your institution or colleagues that, um, you know, you graduated with um, in your programs, um, finding opportunities to publish. Uh, what I really, I love about campus for practitioner pieces and more of the applied, um, more, th- even if it's just like theoretically, you want to think about a topic or discuss a programmatic, some program that you've created. I think that that's a really great source for um, publishing, but any way that you can actually get into the writing experience beyond a actual dissertation, the better, because then you can experience like, you can weigh both of those pieces. Like if writing and publishing is really a challenge for you, but you're really intrigued by it and it gives you energy. If it's more, do you see, like you can decide if you want a more teaching focused position or a more tenure track um, that has a more balanced teaching and research um, position, depending on what your energy lies. So if you have both of those experiences, 
then you might have a more, I guess, educated decision on what type of position you're seeking. That helped me. Um, Those things helped me explore what I wanted and what I was seeking because the research and writing really gives me energy and so does the teaching. Both I find a lot of value in. That also helps you think about institutional types that you might be interested in. If it's a more research one institution, there's higher expectation, you know, supposedly, (laughs) but there is, tends to be a higher expectation to have research. And so, although some R2 research, you know, R2s do try to act more like an R1, right, or are seeking the R1 status. And so there might be adjusted, you know, research standards dependent on your um, your specific context. But that just also helps you think about what institution type you want to be at. If you want to be at a more teaching focused institution or um, a more research focused institution. So having all of that experience, I think helps um, as much as you can. And so to get those, it's just, I think, building relationship and asking questions mm-hmm. as much as you can to try to um, find co-authors or um, folks that would be interested in collaborating on teaching or other teaching opportunities. Right. So. Test the waters, basically, right? Yeah. As much yeah. as you can. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. All right. Well, great. Well, we're we're starting to move into the wrap up. Is there something else I should have been asking you or um, something that you would like to talk about as we wrap up that we haven't hit on yet? I, I don't think so. I think that something that I've been um, like thinking a lot about is kind of this time that we're in in higher ed um, with a lot of openings and um just our retention issues. And so, and a reprioritization of like, um, I guess a rebalance of our lives as much as we can. For me, I'm still on that journey. So I just really appreciated appreciated this time to like critically reflect on the ways that I need to (laughs) align actions. And so anytime that for me, adding voice and engaging in reflection on on your experiences, on your actions, on your life, I think is really useful. So I just appreciate this time. So I guess what I'm trying to say is find people to process with, whether that be a therapist or a friend or a colleague that you trust and that can help you make like thoughtful decisions, but then also just balanced choices in your life is really important. So yeah. You know, as I've listened to your responses kind of across all of the questions, the idea of connection and community uh-huh. really comes through as kind of an essential element that you seem to have cultivated as a, an undergraduate student, a practitioner, a graduate student, and beyond. And so thank you for that. Thanks for that narrative that there are people that we can lean on and who can help pull some of our own thinking out because sometimes we just have to hear ourselves say some things right like oh yeah that is what I think instead of spinning it in our own head so yeah and having your having those folks to call you out (laughs) yes for your shit right right. (laughs) right. um you've said this comment like a million times and no you know let's actually align what you're doing with what, you know, so I have those friends who do that too, that are like, um, let's pay attention to this. Okay. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Those are the people who 
summarize our thoughts right. and right. move them into action sometimes. Yeah. So awesome. Well, one last question before we go, what is something right now can be personal, professional, whatever you want, that's giving you hope? Well, I will say I'm still reeling from um, my Renaissance world tour experience. So I'm a big Beyonce fan, Beehive um, Beehive member, and the space uh, to be free in like the three hour time of her. I've only went once. I'm really bummed that I didn't go more than once, but we happened to be talking and filming this podcast um, the day after her last performance. And I've watched uh, via live multiple points in the different cities, um, like on her birthday and then last night. Um, and um, excited for her film to be out um, as well. But for me, that's I went in Florida, so I traveled to um, Tampa for my show. And um, to be in that state and to have be in a community um, in the state of Florida that um, obviously is a very oppressive state to live in if you are queer or LGBTQ, um, and to, to be in such a liberated space of celebrating um, life and being in kind of a space of safety. It felt like a, 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 a she really created an experience of safety, right? Of celebrating us there, right? Um, and um, having this small moment, it was it was kind of an out of body experience. Have you ever had those moments like that? I don't know. For, music for me does it, and um, so that experience celebrating everybody. I mean, everybody, like our bodies, celebrating everybody, dancing, singing. Uh, not caring that my knees were sweating. I was so hot. It was in Tampa. It was in August, like just being in a free space. Mm -hmm. And that for me is giving me hope is how can we, I'm not a Beyonce, never will be, never can be right. But how can we create these little moments of a free space, freedom, right. Of like liberation of light of moments where we can dance. We don't care if we're sweating that everybody is celebrated um, for me and feeling the love in every space is really important. So that's giving me hope right now. Also, this is just act one. So I have more hope of the continued acts that Beyonce is going to bring us in the future. But that's giving me hope right now is the community um, and celebrating, um, celebrating all the things we contribute to community. I love that. And the fact that that's what you're highlighting. And for listeners, we're recording this at the beginning of October. So a month later, that yeah. feeling is still with you. Um, yep. That's really powerful. So yeah. I thank you so much uh, for the conversation today. I do know that time is a limited resource and we all have lots of things that are asking for our time, but Thank you one more time for being a guest today, Erica. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by Saxa. We thank them for their support. As we close, I'd like to leave you with a quote. To experience peace does not mean that your life is always blissful. 
It means that you are capable of tapping into a blissful state of mind amidst the normal chaos of a hectic life by Dr. Jill Bolt-Taylor. My name is Michelle Botcher. It has been a pleasure to host this episode. Have a beautiful day.